Securities offered through Securities America, Inc. Member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services offered through Securities America Advisors, Inc. Investors Advantage and the Securities America companies are separate entities. The opinions and forecasts expressed are those of the author, may not actually come to pass, and should not be construed as a recommendation of any security or investment plan. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Welcome to Fiscal Fitness with your hosts, John Grace and Daniel Medina. They have all the questions about investing, planning, retirement, and the future. You could say it's all they live for. While it can seem daunting getting everything sorted out and the important questions answered, they'll do their best to make it that much easier. Now, here's John Grace and Daniel Medina. Good afternoon, my friends. This is John Grace and my cohort in crime, Daniel Medina, the math man here at Investors Advantage. So glad you could spend some time with us this afternoon. We've got a lot of ground to cover, but I want you to know that we're going to allow you to meet the PhD economist who actually speaks English. Imagine that. So if you have questions that you want to ask about inflation or what canary in the coal mine there might be, you could submit those uh, in terms of a text message to us, or it'll be live. Uh, we could call in the show. Happy to uh, help you get a handle on things from some of the most intelligent people I've had the pleasure of knowing, and that's why I hang around, uh, or I, I'm glad that people like Daniel Medina and uh, Dr. Lacey Hunt allow me to hang around because I'm convinced if I hang around good people who are smart enough, it's going to rub off. So that's what we're doing here. And we want you to get a sense for what's really going on besides what the Fed wants you to believe and besides what the media doesn't cover in, in, in a way that you actually understand and can determine what does this mean to me and how can I use this information to my advantage. For us, that's what it's all about. What are you trying to do and how can you take the data or the information and discern what is fact as opposed to what is fiction, what is usable as opposed to that which needs to be discarded. And it needs to be looked at regularly because all of those metrics change as we go along. As we blink our eyes, it's another different story to tell, but we have to keep our eye on the ball if we're gonna play any game we might play where there is a ball involved, all right? So we'll start out with what we typically do, as I say, trying to get a, uh, help you get a ride on the reading railroad, if you will, in Monopoly parlance, to see what is the market doing. We don't mean what it's doing today as much as we mean, can we see what the market is doing in a longer time frame, like year to date, um, compared to last year, compared to what we foresee as far as the future is concerned. Right now, we've got remarkable numbers. It's what, just halfway through 2021. And the numbers that we are posting for the Dow and the S&P, for the most part, are annual numbers that you're seeing uh, just through the half point of the year. Now, do not double these numbers in terms of your expectations. But uh, so far this year, with the Dow up 189 points today, uh, it, the Dow is up 12.65%. Uh, and again, that's uh, year to date, which means from January 1 through June 30, 2021 at 12.05. And of course, of course, the markets do close at one o'clock our time on the best coast. To that point, what people often do is look at the market earlier in the day and don't look at the market at the end of the day. And as Daniel can attest, having been here since uh, late 2006, when 2008 came around, it was not a bad day until the last 30 minutes or the last hour. That day after day, we're like, my goodness, how low can we go? 
it was very depressing, I will tell you that. <laughs> and I happen to ha have had the opportunity at that time to be in Goldman Sachs, right? on Wall Street, literally, and it felt, it felt like I was in a tomb. I mean, everybody was so depressed looking at these numbers. So, the, but 12.65% year-to-date for the year so far, those are very, very good numbers. We hope that will hold. We're gonna talk about it from the standpoint that it might not. We want to be prepared for the good, the bad, and the unforeseen. 14.32% for the S&P year-to-date. Those are very good numbers, and we're right back in this neighborhood of uh, the highs as far as the Dow and the S&P are concerned. We, we keep inching uh, north, uh, but we all enjoy the melt up. It's that melt down that can destroy certainly your ability to have a nice day. <laughs> so we've got to be prepared for both ends of that particular rainbow because what goes up does come down. And typically when it comes down, it comes down a whole lot faster. In fact, uh, how's it go? Uh, stocks take the stairs up and the elevator down, okay? So you want to be prepared for that elevator that might be moving a little more quickly than you are from the standpoint of seeing what, how, feeling how that comes to a, a screeching halt. Now, see, this is interesting. When we look at NASDAQ, remember Dow up 189 points today, uh, S&P up 3.5 points today. But now we see this sign that we've been seeing so far this year where there seems to be the NASDAQ not fully on board. I mean, the numbers are good, 12.48% year to date, but the NASDAQ is seeing a bit of a loss today off 18 points. What we're really saying to you here is, and we'll talk with our good uh, guest, uh, Dr. Lacey Hunt, uh, who could have been Federal Reserve Chairman. He is of that caliber. Uh, what we're seeing here is something that we saw back in 2000, 2002, where there was a disparity. In other words, it, it kind of started like this with the NASDAQ not participating with the Dow. I mean, the NASDAQ had a huge run to be, begin uh, or to end the last half of the 90s, but it was the huge loss leader. As I say, what goes up sometimes goes down the fastest. The, lo the loss leader starting around 2000, and of course, markets, uh, NASDAQ was off what? 80%, is that right? In what, 30 months or so? Yep, that's, that's about right. So is this happening again? Stay tuned. But the most important question is, how prepared are you in the event what happened 2000, 2002 happens again? I'm fond of saying that we here in these United States of America don't seem to learn from history so well because we're so darn busy repeating history. So we want to learn from history because if all trees grow to the sky and you know they don't, then we want to be prepared for things to come apart at the seams. Uh, so we're going to look at, um, do you really need a financial advisor? Uh, what can a professional planner offer you? So Daniel has found this thanks to Market Watch. Uh, we read a lot of their material and they provided us with a six question test to find out, are you better off as a do-it-yourselfer or is it better for you to hire a professional? So Daniel, what's the first uh, question that you found uh, in this, uh, this report of the six questions that people can ask and make sure they get answers to? Well, first of all, I, I love this topic because in, in the age that we're in today, there's so much information available. You can literally pick up any subject, go to YouTube or to Google and really figure out how to do it. The question is, do you want to take the time to do it? If a pipe bursts in your house, could you fix it on your own? Yeah, probably. Do you want to take the time to stop and figure out how to do it and buy the material and actually do it yourself? Probably not. For most people, 
what we what we say is pay pay a professional to do the job for you so you can focus on what you do best. And the benefit of using a professional is they're going to know things that, that you don't. They're going to know the best way to do it. They're going to know those little tricks to get it done efficiently. And for the individuals, they're just not going to know those things because that's not their job. That's not their profession. It's not what they do. So for a financial planner, it's very similar. Could somebody go and figure out everything they need to know and be a proficient financial planner? Yes. Do you want to take the time to actually do it? Probably not. This is what we do all day, every day. This is all that we do. We are professionals here. So the first question to ask yourself is, are you looking for financial advice or just stock tips? A lot of people get that confused. When we have conversations with, with potential clients, a lot of times what they're really looking for is the, and this is in quotations, the best investment. They want the investment that's going to give them the best return with no risk. It's going to make them 10% a year and it's never going to lose them any money. Well, I have bad news for you. <laughs> that doesn't exist. Not going to happen. John, how many times do we get asked that question? Yeah, and it's a bad question because there's no good answer, okay? And I think my best analogy is now that we have, thanks God, gone through COVID, hopefully we're through with that one, although that's a little doubtful, right? We can see that uh, people in the world, what are we doing? We're breathing the same air. We are eating the same food. We're drinking the same water, that's for sure. And we're flying the same airplanes again, okay? So we're all in this together. But if the, while you can book your flight and you can see when you're supposed to leave from what airport at what time and what flight and what plane you're supposed to catch to arrive to, at your destination on time safely, that you probably can do successfully, right? But are you flying the plane is the point. Are you dealing with the winds? Are you dealing with the seagulls and the birds and all these things and the weight of the plane? And by the way, we've all gotten larger and so the plane's way more than they used to weigh. So you might get a stock tip, but at the end of the day, what we're going to ask of you is, what do you want this money to do? When, do you, when would you like to make work optional? It's a financial equation, and math is probably the only four-letter word in America we won't use, okay? But we must use it because it is a financial equation. How much money are you going to need to make work optional so that you know it's 65, 70, 72, whatever it might be, here's what we need behind door number one so that at that point, we know that the equivalent of today's income before or after taxes is going to keep going, even though we now know we have the ability to make work optional, which means we have the option of working or not, but we see what it takes so that we can arrive on time safely. And, and then now the job becomes, how are we going to make sure that same income stays in place for our life expectancy, which can easily be at 10, 20 or 30 years. So I, I love the second question about, <laughs> do you, are you ready to listen? How's that go, Daniel? Well, the second question is, are you ready to follow someone's advice or do you just want to hear what I, what I want to hear? And what, that, what, what the, the question is really asking is, are you looking for justification for your own ideas? Are you looking for someone to validate you? So we get this. This is another thing we get a lot. Of. Some people come to us and they ask, they're asking for financial advice, but what they're really looking for is for us to pat them on the back and say, yeah, you're doing a good job. Keep doing what you're doing. They don't want the hard answer. And the hard answers are hard. And a lot of times people go for what's easy and it's not usually in their best interest. Uh, I'm thinking of insurance policies, life insurance policies as financial planning tools. Sometimes they make sense. 
A lot of times they don't. And we get this question often and they want, people want us to validate their life insurance, their whole life, their whole life insurance policy to them. They're doing a good job because this policy is, can, can do, can, can save for retirement and they can borrow tax free and they take money out for a house or education or anything. And there's no cost to it. And it's going to grow forever and it's never going to have any problems. Well, I'm, I'm not going to validate that for you. That's not the way they work. For the most part, those are, those are, those don't make sense. So when you're talking to an advisor, you have to be willing to listen to the advice and criticize what you're doing. Probably not much different than going to see the doctor, right? Oh, no, you can't look at my arm. You can't give me a physical. I just need you to look at my leg. Okay, no, you have to look at the whole body, the whole thing. And you're not going to the doctor, uh, although you might want to go to another doctor to get a second opinion, hint, hint, hint. But you're not going to the doctor expecting that doctor to stoke your ego, are you? No, you're not. What you want to know is what's going on and how can you fix it or help me get this to work like it used to work. That's what you want. Not playing, um, you know, making you feel good and stoking your ego. Yeah, a lot of people are looking for that. But again, they're missing the whole uh, ball of wax. They're, they're, they're lost in their little silo of thinking and in their heads. And that's not going to prepare you for the good, the bad and the ugly if you're staying in your head. No, you're just looking for validation. You want someone to pat you on the back and say, keep doing what you're doing. But that's yeah. not usually the case. That'll keep you stupid, okay? Keep you nice and complacent and not, not right. well. So number three, do I have the discipline to stay the course? A lot of times we, we start these conversations with people and we tell them, this is what we want you to do. We want you to save so much. We want you to spend less than you're spending. We want you to buy this insurance policy. We want you to do these certain things. Spend more, less than you're earning. Spend less than you're earning. And for the most sometimes people are, don't have the discipline to actually follow the advice. This, this is more of a personality thing than anything. What we found is people that, that like delayed gratification tend to do the best. The people that can stick to the plan and actually, wear, and actually weather it out will tend to do best. It's like, a, it's like a diet. When you're dieting, if you're not supposed to eat bread in that diet and the first thing you do is go eat bread, what are you doing for yourself? You're not speaking from experience, are you? Oh, only, only once a month or so. <laughs> well, but you used to love bread. And you're, <laughs> you found a way to limit it. Right. You have to say no. You have to say no to it. And you have to stick right. to it. So the, those are, that's another thing. If you're working with an advisor, um, you're paying for that advice and you're paying the advisor for their time sometimes. So if you're going to pay for that advice, are you going to follow it? Or are you wasting your own money and everyone's time? Good point. And uh, figure out how to stay that course, okay? That means you have to keep looking at it, but so does the advisor. In fact, we're going to get to, when we bring in Dr. Hunt, some of the things that clients are worried about, and guess what? They're not expressing their worries with their advisor if they have one. So it means it's a, you know, a concern, but it's below the watermark. We're, we're not putting this issue on the table, and the advisor isn't either. That's not a good combination to be prepared for the good, the bad, and the, and the unforeseen. What's next, Daniel? Do I have a good understanding of risk? This is a tough question for a lot of advisors as well as investors. And as, as investment advisors ourselves, we think we have a great idea of risk and it's completely the opposite of what the investor thinks risk is. So the way we're going to classify, what we're going to classify risk is how much are you willing to lose in any given period? Are you 
is your investments aligned with how how much you're willing to be down in a period in a six month period example if you're if you're in a hundred percent stock portfolio that portfolio could go down fifty percent are you really willing to take that much risk Do and you, you have to put that? lights on the subject folks because it's uh, it's not uncommon Daniel what we'll be sitting with really good clients and they want to tell us they're conservative. And then we're looking at their portfolio and we're like, hey, the statement is reflecting an entirely different story. I hear you, but you, I need you to know we're going to pay more attention to the statement because you're telling me you're conservative. And many people suggest that's a 60% stock or bond portfolio and the rest is the other side. Yours is 85% uh, U.S. stocks and 15% uh, bonds. That's not conservative. So uh, this is why it's so important to make the conversation around the metrics that matter. That's a good one. So, you know, can you, are you okay with a 12% loss? But did you notice that your account was off 48% in 2008, for example? Do you see the disparity there? And that's where the aha moment shows up because you're like, well, this is what I could live with, but this is what I live through. I don't want to do that again. And for us, that's where the rubber meets the road so that you can see one, this is what you went through. You don't want to do again. And if your portfolio is, it isn't any different than it was, guess what? It's probably poised to do again in the future what it did in the past. Remember, we don't learn from history. We just repeat it. So we want you to set the limit. And then let's see if we can design a portfolio and test it in real numbers to see if it actually performs within your parameters. That way you can let the market do whatever it does, go down like the Titanic. But as long as it doesn't take you and your money with it, we'll keep your assets intact. So risk is so important in a way that people understand. Okay, versus doing it yourself. So many people like would like to do that. Daniel, what do you think? Well, number five is to what extent would your would access to your advisor's knowledge and technology improve your financial life? And this is an important one because a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of advisors have not embraced technology like they have. And it's partial, part of that's an industry problem. The industry just moves slow. We've been going paperless for the last 20 years <laughs> and eventually we'll get there, but it's technology, it's hard to embrace. And are you working with an advisor that's actually embraced the technology to, to to make things simple for you and using those financial planning tools that are available to him. A lot of advisors, in my opinion, aren't doing that. We're lazy folks, that's the truth. Let's get to the last one, Daniel, and then to the break real quick so we can bring in our good doctor, Lacey Hunt. So who do I know and trust that's gonna help me gain a deeper understanding of my financial life? Even if you're a do-it-yourselfer, you can go and get all the information you can find on the internet and watch all the YouTube videos, but a professional that does this all day, every day is likely gonna know more than you. This is all that I do. You, you probably can't throw a scenario at me that I haven't had some experience with. Use the people in your life that know, that are experts in this and ask those tough questions. Beautiful. So that's our six question test to find out if you need a financial advisor. And for those who are serious, we're going to suggest, yes, that's a good answer to the question. Uh, hire the best person you can and look at the numbers on a net after cost and uh, inflation basis and see what it takes for you to be able to put your financial plan in place. So with that, we will take a quick break and we'll be right back with our favorite PhD economist, Dr. Lacey Hunt.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. At Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance. Coupled with a sound plan for the future, with the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, we're offering our financial planning services free for anyone serving in those roles. So whether you're a nurse, a member of the police force, or a retail employee, we'd love to sit down with you and help you plan for the other side of this pandemic. Please feel free to share this offer with the critical infrastructure workers you know who are providing services where they are most needed. Visit YB4.com or call us at 805-495-2077. That's YB4.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service, and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Fiscal Fitness. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now, back to Fiscal Fitness. Welcome back, my friends. John Grace and Daniel Medina here with Fiscal Fitness on Voice America. Glad you have some time for us this afternoon. And we want to dig in uh, right away with uh, our good friend, Dr. Lacey Hunt. I believe he earned his PhD at age 26. He's been in the business over 50 years. He's continuing to be in the business. He is one of the best and the brightest people I know. Had the pleasure of getting to know him through Dent Research, where we have been paying, as we've talked to you about before, for independent research, unlike most of our peers. And I mean, I'm talking about nine out of 10, as far as I can tell, typically do not pay for independent research. And what that means is we're listening to our hierarchy, the people above us, and they're giving us pablum to pass on to you, and that's all we have. And we obviously, one of the reasons I apologize for my peers over the last 40 years, is we tend to just repeat what we've learned 40 years ago as though that's still current today. And really it's not, but as I say, many of us are lazy as heck, right? Okay, so Lacey Hunt is an internationally known and award-winning economist, happens to be executive price Vice President and Chief Economist at Hoisington Investment Management Company, a firm that manages over $5 billion for pension funds, endowments, insurance companies, and others. He's the author of two books and numerous articles in leading magazines, periodicals, and uh, scholarly journals. He is quite scholarly, scholarly, okay? So that includes Barron's, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. I've seen him on Bloomberg. And he was kind enough to uh, say a, uh, some good words in, about my book uh, that uh, he thought of I should be congratulated on a short investment primer. If you just read the snappy section titles, you'll become so interested that you will read this fast moving book. So feel free to pick up my book, uh, Making Finance Make Sense, either at Yahoo or Amazon. Uh, Dr. Hunt says it's a good primer and that's what it was designed to be, kind of a beach entrance, uh, not to the level that Dr. Hunt can, can, can explain and go into, but Dr. Hunt has also uh, been a professor. So he's used to talking to college students, which means he speaks English and he can talk with you, okay? So let, 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 let's start here because this- I, I just respect you, I was never really a professor. Oh, well, but adjunct? I, 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 I went in, I went in, I was, I always worked in industry in the Federal Reserve and banking. Uh, 
Uh -huh. I had right. one brief stint before I left Temple University in the spring semester of 69. That was it. <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate your... I appreciate the accolade, though. Well, I appreciate your cleaning up my act, okay? So it's going to spill on aisle nine. Clean it up. All right. So, look, I don't know if you saw this yesterday, but I think it really does a couple of things in terms of stating the case. This is an Alliance 2021 Retirement Risk Readiness Study that I just saw this week. Found that 71% were worried about the rising cost of health care. 67% were worried about rising costs of living, and 66% were worried about market downturns that could affect their savings. And by the way, these percentages represent significant increases from the survey just last year. Now, where it gets even more interesting to me is approximately one-third say they have broached the subjects that they're worried about with their advisor. And what that also tells me is that the advisor hasn't broached the subject with their investor. So everybody's just trying to stay calm and keep going along as though happy days are here again and there's no uh, issues on the table. So what we've got here, Lacey, is what? A Goldilocks economy, price for perfection. Everything's just working swimmingly. There's no issues anywhere. What, what, what worries you right now? Um, my view is that... Um... We're at the uh, peak of inflation and growth now, hmm. and uh, that that uh, that although inflation is serious, uh, you'll see it unwind quite a bit. And there's actually a strong risk of disinflation, even deflation. Uh, the main problem that we have, and it's not just a U.S. problem; it's a worldwide problem, is that we're suffering from a massive debt overhang. We have too much debt, too much of the wrong type of debt. And uh, every time we have a problem, uh, we take on more debt. And while the debt can provide us a transitory boost to the economy, uh, the boost is very fleeting, doesn't last very long. And then the law of diminishing returns takes effect and it pulls the economy down. We've, we've seen this pattern over and over again in Japan since the late 1980s. Uh, we have nearly as long a record in Europe. Um, and we have really some important instances in the US. Uh, we debt finance some what were called the shovel ready projects of 2009 and 2010. Uh, we, had, we had one good quarter, another one was okay. And then the growth rate decelerated. And uh, it turned out that even with all of that borrowed money being pumped into the economy, uh, we had the worst expansion in U.S. economic history. That's important. Then, then, then we had the debt finance tax cuts of 2018. Second quarter of 2018 was a mighty good quarter. But that was it. And when the pandemic hit, the economy was tailing off rather significantly. In fact, uh, the Federal Reserve was cutting interest rates all the way through 2019 after we borrowed a great deal of money to finance the tax base. And, and so I think the longer-term economic outlook is guarded, but the good news is that we're at the worst of inflation now. Well, and when you talk about debt, is it the case, I mean, for the most part, you're addressing the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, country debt, but are you seeing the same pattern with corporations and consumers? 
I'm looking at aggregate debt, public and private, excluding the not financial institutions. Um, and uh, our debt levels are extremely high. This is the, we're, we're in the fifth debt bubble uh, since our republic was founded in 1800. And um, normally these debt bubbles were very far apart. They were about 50 years apart. We had one in 1838 and 1873, then the 1929, a lot of people remember that, then 2008. So we now have another debt bubble peak in 2020. This is 12 years after the old peak. And we didn't unwind uh, the 2008 peak. Now the government debt is the, is the highest relative to GDP, uh, but our corporate sector is very heavily over leveraged. And the household sector is also over leveraged. So we, we have a lot of debt in, in all major sectors of the US economy. There is a little bit of good news is that um, if you look at debt relative to GDP, which is the appropriate way to do it, it's 100 points higher in Europe than it is in the US. <laughs> and it's about 275 points higher in Japan. Okay, so, so everybody else is doing worse. <laughs> yes, that's, that's for the good bad news, right? Yes. Well, and I mean, have you not seen this kind of pattern in the past? Was this the kind of environment we were in in the in the Roaring Twenties? It started off with a bang and ended with a bust. That's exactly right. Uh, we actually started taking debt on in the early nineteen hundreds, and. Um, we were becoming increasingly indebted through the 19 teens. But then in the 1920s, we had a rip roaring party. Well, they call it the roaring twenties. Exactly. But by uh, 1929, we were heavily over indebted and um, it brought in a deflationary era. And it really, if you want to be precise about it, the, the Great Depression really lasted until Germany invaded Poland in 1939. When that happened, then uh, we began been selling products to war parties. In the beginning of the war, we were neutral, so we could sell to both parties. And um, there was um, a miraculous aspect. Of world War II was very unfortunate, but there was a beneficial side effect. Um, we had a, a tremendous surge in our exports. Um, our, our allies, they were war zones, so they, 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 they bought everything we needed and they paid us. Uh, we had large budget deficits, and some people think that's what brought us out of World War II. It was not. Right. Um, but we, we, World War II was a period of austerity, and we had mandatory rationing. And so we were running government budget deficits of 14% of GDP, but private saving was 30% of GDP. And so we paid off the debt of the 20s and 30s and the economy performed very well until we got into the 1990s and the debt levels began to undermine economic growth. And today we really are dealing with very extravagant levels of debt. 
So that's not much different than what we just went through in terms of uh, being forced to save with the COVID thing, right? Where people have income from various sources and they were doing well with saving that income. But that only seems to happen when we're in a forced uh, kind of a mentality, if you will. So you say that the savings rate um, got up to about 30%. Uh, where are we today? The private, which, private, which is yes. going to be the household and the government sector as well. Right. Okay. And today? And if, you look, if you look at total net national saving as a percent of national income, and that would be uh, the private sector, the government, and the net farm, uh, we're currently only about 2% right now. Of, of net national income. Hmm. And historically, we've averaged six and a half percent. We'll just make this up with volume, right? Uh, no, no, you can't make it up. This won't be, okay, well said, then. John. Okay, <laughs> that's the point. It's not going to be made up with, you know, debt doesn't, uh, is not the panacea, right? It works no. in an up market, but it's your, it's the devil in the down market. I know, it, Daniel, it, it can be helpful for these short intervals. And right. uh, I mean, last year we were in a crisis situation. We had a lot of people hurting. Um, say it was socially responsible, politically popular. But the fact of the matter is, the debt will have this negative influence for a long time into the future. Kind of like those hanging chads, right? We won't forget. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on hanging chads. Okay, fair, fair enough. Daniel, I know you've assembled some questions that clients have uh, posed. Well, my first one is, is specifically about debt actually the u.s has just generated so much debt how do we get out of this is there a, is there a way for them to do we grow out of it do they pay it off is that even an option oh, well um that question has been answered by folks that are a lot smarter than me uh, there was a, a very uh, profound lengthy study by a great team at mckinsey global institute which is the sort of think tank of McKinsey and Associates. And they looked at uh, 28 in, uh, advanced economies that, began, that became extremely over-indebted between 1900 and 2008. So we knew the outcome in all of these cases. So we saw the buildup of debt, the debt bubble peak, and then what happened. And McKinsey found that in all 28 cases, it had to be what McKinsey called austerity. And they defined that as a significant increase in net national saving. So, but here's the problem for, for democracies. Um, austerity is not politically sellable. <laughs> and so what we do is every time that we have a problem, whether it's slow economic growth or pandemic or whatever, we take on more debt, hoping that that will kickstart the economy. But the benefit to the economy is very short, and then the growth tails off. And one of the things your listeners should be doing is, is check what happens here. See whether I'm right or wrong. But I think we're going to see that the growth rate and inflation are going to tail off very dramatically. And by the end of the year, we're going to have a situation where the level of economic activity is going to be well below the trend rate of growth that we would have had had we not had the pandemic at all. And so that's the situation. Great question. So if I understand this correctly, 
and excuse me if I didn't, but what I'm hearing is the only way to get out of this problem is for people to simply save more money. But it has to involve all three sectors. So government, private, and corporate. Well, the private includes the corporate. That would be private is household and corporate. And then that we have a small component of our saving from the foreign sector. Um, the foreign sector saving is actually the inverse of the current account deficit. But the three together, we have to move that level up. And, and the reason that this is very critical, and, and this holds for everybody, not just the United States, but for everybody, um, physical investment, what we call big I, capital I. I'm not talking financial investment. I'm talking investment in bricks, mortars, technology, things that are going to raise the standard of living, must equal saving out of income. And so historically, uh, for the last uh, almost eight decades, that's been six and a half percent at national saving, six and a half at national investment, six and a half. Right now, it's only two. And so we don't really have the resources to accelerate um, real investment. And so without real investment, you cannot raise the standard of living. I'm, I'm going to chance something here because I, I sense maybe from the tone of your questions that you have a pretty smart audience. And I'm going to give you a couple of numbers. If, if you look at U.S. economic performance, from 1870 until we became very over-indebted there in the 1990s. In real per capita terms, we grew 2.2% per annum. Since then, which is, which is more than two decades now, almost 23, 24 years, we've only grown 1.2% per annum. And so that means that at the end of last year, the real per capita GDP was about $56,000. Had we been able to maintain our growth rate at 2.2 instead of veering down to 1.2, the average person would have had 25% more, about $4,000 more of real GDP. So it cuts into it. And so um, when, when your growth rate turns down like this, uh, it begins to undermine your demographics. And we're seeing a deterioration in demographics that's very significant. And the numbers don't get reported every day because it, we focus on the, these normal reports on economic activity. But um, in the last 12 months, the number of actual births, not as a percent, the number of actual births, is 3.6 million and the deaths are 3.5. If you look at the birth rate, and which is a percentage number, it's the lowest in US economic history. Let's pause on and, that note if we could. Lacey, please, we gotta take a quick break and we'll pick okay. up where we left off folks. So don't move, you've got to hear this because it makes sense. This is really important and you're not getting it from news anywhere. We'll be right back. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. 
at Investors Advantage Corporation, our trademark statement, the proof is in the planning, represents the value we see in hard work and perseverance, coupled with a sound plan for the future. With the challenges facing our country's frontline workers, we see a lot being asked and not a lot given in return. To reward our nation's frontline employees and clients, we're offering our financial planning services free for anyone serving in those roles. So whether you're a nurse, a member of the police force, or a retail employee, we'd love to sit down with you and help you plan for the other side of this pandemic. Please feel free to share this offer with the critical infrastructure workers you know who are providing services where they are most needed. Visit YB4.com or call us at 805-495-2077. That's YB4.com or 805-495-2077. We are located in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you for your service, and we look forward to lending a hand through your financial journey. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Fiscal Fitness. To reach the show today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at ybpoor.com. Now, back to Fiscal Fitness. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. So glad you could spend some time with us here. John Grace and Daniel Medina, Fiscal Fitness at Voice America. We're delighted to have my good friend, Dr. Lacey Hunt, PhD economist, who actually speaks English, right? He doesn't speak Mandarin, at least not speaking about the economy. So uh, he actually gives us an idea of what he sees. And understand, economists are really interesting professionals. They're very good at saying, well, you know, when you ask them a question, well, on the one hand, uh uh-huh. And on the other hand, uh uh-huh. They don't want to be wrong, so they're really good at covering their bets or their... Right. But Dr. Hunt doesn't do that because that leaves you just in the median. Right. Well, which way are you going? Uh, Well, on the one hand. No, no, no. Which way are you going? You seem to have some idea here. So let me have some idea. And that's what Dr. Hunt does so well. So I think we've crafted a great question based on the questions you've given us in summary of what we were just talking about in terms of this demographic uh, issue that we do not study. It's just not something we do. Daniel, pose the question, please. So what I'm hearing you say from the last segment is we're, as a society, and when I mean, I mean the United States, we're not, we're not saving enough, we're not earning enough, and we're not birthing enough. And we're doing better than the rest of the world. What does that mean for the world economy if, if the United States is the engine of the world? Well, we're, we're not capable of being the engine of growth. And in fact, they're, we're all weak brothers and sisters at this stage of the game. Um, As a matter of fact, um, the rest of the world is leaning on us and and they are, they're continuing to push up 
their trade surpluses to us, um, uh, which displaces economic output over time. Um, but uh, they, keep in mind that what they, the, their trade surplus has to be reinvested in the U.S. So they actually help cover the, the massive indebtedness problem. They don't have anywhere else to go. They have to come to us. They, they have to. If, 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 if you want to sell me something and I don't have any funds, then you have to take my ILU. Right. And so that's why this odd situation exists. And, and so um, as a result of the fact that the family formations are down, the birth rate is down, uh, the U.S., Japan, China, Europe, we're all getting older. Uh, it's a really serious problem in Japan and uh, China. For example, already the average age in China is 40 years. We're 38. But in two years, the average age in China will be 41. They're, they're really aging very, very rapidly. Now, you may ask, well, why, why does this hurt economic growth? Well, some people say that having fewer bodies is inflationary, and, and that effect is there. But um, the, the demographics have a huge impact on investment, household investment, business investment, and government. Think, think of the cost of bringing in babies, educating them, providing for them, sending them to college. And then think of the business investment that you have to generate to meet those demands. And, um, and the governmental demands, you have to build more shopping, I mean, more schools and so forth. And so when you have weak demographics, that reduces investment, which then pulls down your capability of growth. And so the, the demographics uh, is exacerbating the law of diminishing returns and the, or the overuse of debt. And fortunately, um, we, our demographics are still better than everyone else's, but, uh, but they're a very worrisome trend. But to your point, um, hang on a second, please. This is what, one of the things we were talking about uh, with the research team back in 2019. The observation, again, this is 2019, that not only is the world population changing in complexion, but for the first time ever, there are more people over 64 or 65 than five or younger. That's globally, folks. So when people say happy days are here again, we're all getting older. It's happening right here, right now. And we're not seeing how that evolution is changing everything fundamentally. We've never been in a place where we had more people in their 60s than five or younger historically. You can't fix this. And by the way, last year, we were talking about this, the U.S., uh, I think we were light by about 300,000 births thanks to COVID. So this isn't going away. I think you're right. We're all kind of sick in this equation, and there's no, there's nobody coming from Mars to, to be our salvation. <laughs> Go ahead, Daniel. Daniel. When you're when you're looking at the world economies, uh, where I know I know primarily we're talking about developed economies. What about emerging markets like China? They're now encouraging three babies per household as opposed to one. Is that going to make a difference? Well, uh, China is basically not in a position to correct their problem. They they are now allowing um, uh, an increased number of babies, but they they went with the one child per family for so long that they have a huge supply of young men. 
and a very small supply of young women. That's kind of ugly. It takes two to tango, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and so they've got a very, very difficult situation. And uh, so uh, China is not going to be able to correct their problem. Actually, last year, China's population, according to the private demographers, not the government, it was flat. We at least grew one third of 1%, which was the lowest in our history, but at least we're growing a little bit. Are there any bright spots? <laughs> well, um, India is still growing very rapidly. There are parts of uh, uh, Africa that are growing well. Um, the, the problem is that when you look at global population growth, picks up everybody. This is, these are numbers from the UN. Uh, the increase last year globally in percentage terms was the slowest since the 1950s. See, because global economic growth is coming down. Um, one of the best ways to measure that is to look at world trade volume. And even though the economy was still growing in 2019 before the pandemic, we actually had a decline in world trade volume. The first time this ever happened without having a global recession. And so the fact that there are really no strong players to provide an engine of growth is having this global reverberation. And, and so there's really no help. Now, the, the one thing that might change, hard to know, is that we could get some type of new technologies. But I'm influenced by the work of Dr. Robert Gordon at Northwestern. And he pointed out that in our period of great growth, we had revolutionary uh, inventions like the combustion engine, transmission of electricity, modern sanitation, and so forth. Those revolutionary te technologies increase the demand for labor and for capital. And, but the technologies today are more evolutionary. For example, you can get a machine tool and automate it and put it on the assembly line and you you can produce more output than you would if you had a manually operated. Look at what's happening in the checkout counters of the world. See, it doesn't enhance the demand for labor and capital. And so while we have wondrous technologies, the technology that we're getting today is of a different type. It's more evolutionary than revolutionary. So let me ask you a question, because one of the things that people are suggesting is our salvation happens to be uh, things like Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Why are cryptocurrencies in particular not money, in your opinion? And is this the future or are what's happening with the declines, particularly with currents or commodities in particular, and certainly with Bitcoin, are those canaries in the coal mine? Well, I'm not an expert in Bitcoin, but this is, I'm going to tell you what I what, what I think as a professional economist who has no knowledge of the specifics of the market. To me, for something to have value, it ha must have a stream of earnings, a seeable stream of earnings in the future that we can discount into present value terms. You can easily do that on a bond. You can, for well-established companies, you can do the same. So if something has what we call net-net, net present value, then, then the item has value. Another measure of value is store of value. 
and um, things that uh, have held their value and gone up in price over time uh, meet that definition. And we, we know that the precious metals have done that over time. Uh, I don't see those two possibilities with Bitcoin. But what I do see is that um, the Federal Reserve trying to help the economy along has created a lot of liquidity. And so we get an increase in the money supply, but it's, it remains in the banking system, in the financial markets. It, it doesn't get lent out because we're so heavily over indebted. And as a consequence, the velocity of money is falling. And when, when that happens, the Fed, the Fed created liquidity gets trapped in the financial markets. And so this liquidity causes a bidding up of financial assets prices and a reduction in financial asset returns. And when, when, you, when the process gets going for a long time as it is now, people then start looking at more and more fanciful options. Fanciful. And I think that um, the liquidity and the low rates of return on traditional assets is forcing people to look at this. But I, I as a professional economist, um, look at it very, very cautiously. But as I said, I have no specific knowledge in the market and I'm not an investor. Fair enough. We've got about a minute. What about uh, we're seeing a lack of breadth? That's B-R-E-A-D-T-H. You know what that means. What, what's happening here? I'm sorry. I didn't catch what you said. Breath. We're not seeing a lot of volume in the markets right now. Are we setting up for a September to remember, the September of oh, this, this is the way I view the stock market. Now, I'm a fixed income investor. And so I'm aware of the stock market and I'm interested in it, how it affects macroeconomic conditions, because macroeconomics are critical to the bond market. In my view, the stock market is a very poor economic indicator. As a bond investor, I basically have to ignore it. And I think what has happened uh, in the last 30 years, the stock market has been, become a barometer of liquidity. Mm -hmm. It's not a barometer of, of, of business well-being. And if you look at uh, corporate profits from our national accounts, the data that comes up from the IRS, all the numbers are calculated on the same formula, not, no addendum items. Total profits economy-wide are unchanged from 2012. You need actual profits for the economy to grow. Financial profits. profits are good for those holding the assets, but they don't grow the economy. I appreciate your being with us. Will you come back on again? Can we have I will. Back? You're my good friend, John. No, I will. <laughs> I, I, I like the I company can't do it very often because I, I'm a little busy, but yes, uh, you're, you're a great host and uh, I want to commend you and your show. And I'm sure that uh, everyone enjoys hearing your words of wisdom. Well, and, uh, I'm glad to see you, my old friend. I'm so glad to see you. I'm sure glad you're here. I'm glad you do what you do as well as you do. And folks, this is what we do. So like Daniel said, you want to talk to people. That's all they do. You want to make sure you get from them what they do, because if they don't do anything else, they're probably paying more attention than you are, right? Because you're busy and you don't need to pay attention when you can hire the best help your money can buy. So we're going to leave it at that. Thank you so much, Dr. Lacey Hunt, for being with us this afternoon. Thank you, John.
We will have him back when he's available. And Daniel and I will be back right here, same bat station, same bat time on Wednesdays, 12 to 1 Pacific time uh, next week. We'll see you then. Thank you for tuning to Fiscal Fitness. Please join John Grace and co-host Daniel Medina again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have an excellent week.